save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, this is Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. We've been discussing and carrying forth the conversation on our social media and here on this podcast about the need for our carnivores in keeping healthy landscapes and ecosystems, focused on our North American iconic species, wolves, coyotes, and cougars. Over our recent conversations, we've had several experts helping us to better understand how our wildlife management systems and policies are skewed in in favor of game species, cattle, and sheep, and more ungulates for us to hunt and eat, thus relegating most carnivores into the category of vermin, and thus missing the critical aspects of carnivore conservation and the roles and niches they fill in overall ecosystems' health and biodiversity. Today, my guest is Dr. Jay Tischendorf. Dr. Tischendorf is Vice President of the Mountain Lion Foundation, on the Board of Directors of the Eastern Cougar Foundation, and the Interim President of the Cougar Rewilding Foundation. He received his doctoral degree in veterinary science from Colorado State University in 1997. As a wildlife veterinarian, he is contracted with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in red wolf and black-footed ferret recovery programs and the U.S. Forest Service Northern Rockies Wolverine Study. He is a pioneer in the surgical implantation of radio transmitters. Jay spent two years tracking, capturing, and collaring cougars in Yellowstone National Park, confirming for the first time in our modern history the presence of cougars in the park. His experience was instrumental in making the ABC documentary film Ghost Cat of the Rockies. Jay is a leading expert on cougars in the East and has been actively involved with the subject for 25 years. Today, Jay and I are furthering further delving into the iconic cat of many names, our North American lion, as the conundrum, conflict, and dichotomy of their future continues. That which is, people like carnivores. We like to know they're out there, but we're scared of and feel threatened by them when they're in our neighborhoods or around our livestock, and thus our management systems and ranchers are inherently geared toward removing them at will. So we have an interesting conversation ahead for you today. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jay Tischendorf. Hello, Ellie. Thank you so much for welcoming welcoming me into your program. This is fantastic. Well, welcome. I'm so excited to be talking to you and delving more and more into cougars. I'm so familiar with African wildlife, but I am learning so much more about our own carnivores because I am a carnivore person. <laughs> <laughs> we we all are learning. There's so much more to learn about these these animals. It's amazing. Well, that's what I hope we get to uh, hear today is some of your experience and and you know remove some of these myths and mysteries around um, the ghost cat. So um, why don't we begin with a little bit about your career because you are downright spectacular. You have done so much. So why don't you uh, take it away here? Well, thank you. And, and uh, uh, before we get started, I would like to dedicate uh, my uh, involvement here to a very good friend of mine who unfortunately was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease and passed away very soon after the diagnosis. His name was Chris Lukash. He was a career biologist, really a field biologist with the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, worked on the North Carolina Red Wolf Restoration for, for really 30 years and uh, left behind a beautiful wife and family of three kids. Uh, really a tragic story, but a wonderful documentary film has been made about Chris and, and the parallel story of the Red Wolves that he spent his life trying to save. It's called Red Wolf Staring Down Fate, and it's a documentary by a group out of North Carolina uh, uh, wild sides, and if one Googles that term, Red Wolf Staring Down Fate, on YouTube, they can see a few uh, clips 
of, of the film. And it really is a, a amazing uh, film uh, about Chris's life and, and his work. And again, the parallel story, they read Wolf. So well, like thank, just to him. Yeah. thank you for that. And we will be sure to include uh, the Red Wolf, a link to that. And that's a wonderful dedication. I, I think that's the first time anyone has ever ded- dedicated one of our podcasts to someone. So I feel very honored, um, both with the dedication and to be able to be speaking with you today. So um, you're a veterinarian. You're a wildlife veterinarian. Um, we talked earlier and we sort of have crossed paths in, in time in terms of both being in the same place but at different times. And uh, so let's talk about how you got started. And, you know, obviously you are a very busy guy and you're running around all the time. And I'm not sure what you're running around doing. So why don't you tell us a bit about how you got started and, and what you're doing? Well, uh, it's it's an interesting question, uh, and I'm not sure where to begin. But let me say that I, uh, having mentioned Lou Gehrig's disease, I, I uh, knock on wood, I feel like Lou Gehrig because I really I feel so fortunate. I've had a uh, a great career, and I've been blessed to work with really some of the icons in the wildlife, and particularly carnivore uh, field. Ellie over the years, Dave Meech, Lynn Rogers, Morris Hornucker, uh, the Craighead twins, uh, and their families, um, uh, Yuli Seal, who was a, a human physiologist, did a lot of research with the Veterans Administration involving wolves, somewhat of a unique character, um, had the, the good fortune of working with Ducks Unlimited for a time, and again, you know, many of the different agencies and some of the NGOs that are fairly prominent, Audubon, uh, Nature Conservancy, so really, I just feel like so fortunate, and if I can share some of my experiences and hope uh, uh, help motivate others, especially young people, to get involved in this great cause of conservation and protecting the environment, you know, I, I feel like maybe I've made a little bit of difference out there. So my interest, I, you know, as a kid, I had a real fascination with endangered species. And of course, so many endangered species uh, are, in fact, predators and carnivores and raptors um, that it just was sort of a natural, I think, fit for me to, to really follow down that path in my career. And uh, I know I vividly remember getting really specifically interested in the saga and the mystery of the eastern cougar. As a high school student way back in 1978, there was an article in Natural History magazine about that subject, and it just captivated me. And really, ever since that point, I, I have not been able to let it go. And for a long time, many, many years, decades, in fact, I believe that there quite possibly was this remnant commando-like population of eastern cougars still existing in various locations in the east. Uh, and eventually realized, uh, having had the experience of working in the West and in Yellowstone, primarily hands-on with mountain lions, uh, with some great field biologists out there un- under Morris Hornaker, realized that really there, the, the evidence was so uh, absent in the East, despite a few occasional confirmations and things like that, that really there was no, no cause to believe that the cat really still did exist in the east and certainly not in any viable reproducing numbers outside of florida of course with the florida panther and uh, at that point uh, we had started a group called the eastern cougar foundation which we subsequently changed the name to the cougar rewilding foundation and became much more passionate and active in trying to campaign and advocate for the restoration you know at the hands of humans let's let's step in and help this cat recover in the midwest and the east and to some extent, naturally, it's already having some hope of recolonization in the Midwest, uh, where Western cats are filtering in. Unfortunately, when those cats show up, they're typically confirmed uh, through a carcass. They're they're shot. They're hit by cars, um, and so and, and almost invariably, they're young males. We we don't see many females showing up just because of the nature of cougar biology and dispersal systems, but, um, yeah, unfortunately, most of the cats that show up tend to end up on the the, the dead end of the uh, spectrum, and so obviously not going to do much in terms of the recolonization, but the hope is there, but again, uh, particularly further east, I think if we're going to have hope of mountain lions roaming our eastern woodlands and national forests and wild areas, we really are going to have to get get involved as, as people and, and wildlife biologists and managers 
and step up and make it happen ourselves, much as we've tried with black-footed ferrets, red wolves, peregrine falcons, bald eagles, other species like that. So river well, otters. Well, let's let's stay here uh, okay. for a little bit. Um, you know, previously I've, we talked with Will Stolzenberg and his fabulous book *Heart of a Lion*, which documented, yeah, which documented the whole um, two-year lifespan of the Connecticut lion through. The finding the carcass back to camera trap and DNA samples, he was able to put together an, an absolutely beautiful love story um, about this lion. And then we spoke with John Landre and um, Corinna Domingo and Lynn Cullens of the Mountain Lion Foundation, and we're speaking with you. So let's talk, let's stop here for a minute. We know there were cougars in the east that most likely there are maybe an occasional sighting now and then today. We know we have them in the west, all the way from the north to the south, and I know we have them here in Colorado, and there's this bottleneck, and that happens somewhere around the Dakotas, where they, the dispersing males, and this is what I'd like to talk about a bit, is why these dispersing males can't get through this bottleneck and this gauntlet to get back east, and maybe you can tell us about their biology, their ecology, and their behavior a bit, and what they have to face to try and get through. They're such an elusive cat, but as you'd said, we end up seeing them as carcasses. Yes, uh, and, and it is, it's challenging and it's frustrating. Um, it's funny, Ellie, uh, years ago, Bob Downing, who was a Fish and Wildlife Service biologist charged with trying to document cougars in the east, commented to me that he, he really had not had success. He'd found a few tantalizing pieces of evidence, but Again, as I eventually concluded, in large part because of Bob's mentorship, the cats really just were not there, certainly not in breeding populations. But his comment to me was, you know, maybe these are western cats that are dispersing or migrating in. And at the time, this was in the late 80s, I just I just could not get my arms around that. And lo and behold, Bob Downing was absolutely right. That's exactly what's happened in the Walker cat that we've come to call the the South Dakota cat that Will Stolzenberg so beautifully documented in his book, which, by the way, everybody should buy and read. It's an incredible story. Um, exemplifies the fact that these western cats do disperse and they can travel very long distances. Uh, and interestingly, uh, really without, uh, you know, um, human, human disruption, without causing a whole lot of chaos with people, that cat uh, traveled who knows how many thousands of miles, certainly straight line, it was about 1,500, uh, and really left uh, no, no evidence of, of uh, adverse human interactions or anything. It really just wanted to do its thing and be left alone and probably looking for love and unfortunately never found it. There was just a, a female cat, this was interesting, in, in Nebraska that migrated from uh, far western Nebraska all the way into Iowa, and that's fairly unusual because the female mountain lions, the young cats, the sub-adults, the young, young adult females typically stay close to their natal home range while it's the young males that tend to wander off to seek out new, new horizons and, and so on. And probably much as we see with uh, um, uh, other, other uh, species of mammals, it's, it's those males that really do tend to disperse, uh, such was the case with Walker, Will Stolzenberg's South Dakota cat. Uh, and most of the other cats that have shown up in the Midwest and, and perhaps the few that have shown up in the East. So, yeah, but as I said, unfortunately, what happens is those cats tend to be hit by cars, shot by hunters, farmers protecting, ostensibly protecting property or themselves, and uh, not a whole lot of great evidence um, that cats that have shown up, and sometimes they're captured on trail cams, and do disappear. We don't ever find out what's happened to them, but for the most part, the cats that we know of uh, are documented through fatalities, uh, which is unfortunate. And, you know, in, in states outside of the Dakotas, where the mountain lion was able to recolonize based on cats from Montana and Wyoming and perhaps Colorado wandering in over the years, going back several decades now, and also into Nebraska, where the same phenomenon is happening, 
uh, outside of those states, and of course even in those states, they are considered a hunted, uh, a huntable species, game animal. Uh, and outside of those states, they really don't enjoy a lot of protection to the to the east, so into the Midwest and into the east, um, some questionable protection. And if somebody makes the claim that they feel like they were protecting themselves or their property, uh, there's not a whole lot of questions that get asked about the specifics of why they actually chose to kill that animal. And of course, many are being hit by cars, and that's just kind of a function of our society today. And the mobility of people and the abundance of vehicles and wildlife um, needing to cross highways to get where it wants to go. And, and so, as much as people have dispersed into much more <laughs> suburban locations, we live in the woods now. True, 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 very true. Yeah. And then what usually happens, like here in Glenwood and over in Edwards, Colorado, in Glenwood, five mountain lions were spotted within a West Glenwood neighborhood. One was a mother with three cubs, and the other was a lone um, young lion. They were all killed, because when it comes down to human health and safety, quote, unquote, um, yeah. the lions are taken out. So it uh, brings a question to mind, is hazing an effective tool for, let's say, that mother and three cubs, they were an intact family, could they have been hazed out of the neighborhood and would they have moved on or does that not work with mountain lions? I don't honestly know that there's a lot of what we would really consider rigorous scientific study, partly because it would be so darn difficult to study this, but from a behavior standpoint, Ellie, I, I do believe that it could be done uh, I think there's evidence with grizzly bears and, and uh, some other species, perhaps, that, that there is some potential. Uh, I like to point out to the, the Californian, by the way, I, I should mention that you, you noted I was a vice president of the Mount Lion Foundation. And that, that's actually not correct. I've been involved with the Mount Lion Foundation for a long time, but I've never served as an officer, although I've, I've been a president and vice president several times with the Cougar Rewilding Foundation. Well, thank you but for Cal the correction. Yep, yep, no worries. And California really has been a model for tolerance of, of mountain lions, and they have what I like to call the red light, yellow light, green light sort of program that, that ranks the the danger, if you will, of a of mountain lion occurrence or presence or observations. And, you know, they've had a lot of success. They, they, they know well of mountain lions wandering into suburban areas, high-density human-populated areas, and then wandering out, and, and that's without any uh, overt hazing. Uh, it does seem like, for the most part, the cats really just want to be left to themselves, and, and they're not out there intentionally trying to harm people or, 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 or livestock. It does happen on occasion, but I think it's fairly rare. Um, if we did add some hazing to the equation, I think we probably could have even more success. Um, but yeah, I think in the Cougar Rewilding Foundation several years ago, we, we launched a program to, to do incident management training for police, animal control officers, game wardens, and biologists and managers in areas. Had a great course up in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, um, and then have just really not had a chance to... to revisit the program but we need to do that but the whole what point is that what is instant management in incident management oh. the whole point was really to, to to share with these people who in, invariably will be the ones called out when somebody sees a mountain lion which isn't supposed to be to let them know the different uh, options they have to handle that situation and, and truly it ranges from you know lethal control all the way to benign neglect which is a medical term we use, which basically means, hey, let's just watch and see what happens. And for the most part, unless that cat is directly threatening somebody or somebody's property, and it can be documented, uh, I think if we leave them alone, they will find their way out of those situations. Uh, so how prefer. could we help people who live in these areas, not only the, the first responders, but those who are calling the first responders to understand a little bit more that this cat is not necessarily posing a threat well your podcast help training education i think is so critical and if we can get children while they're young a great colleague of mine gary kohler out in uh, idaho and in washington set up a program uh, cougars in the classroom to actually get kids out involved with field research with him and mount lions 
helping to catch the cats, radio collar them, and then track their movements with radio telemetry. And you can imagine the excitement that these kids, you know, burgeoning scientists, uh, got from this this kind of experience. And so any way we can re- recreate that, whether it's with squirrel research or mountain lions or bobcats or whatever, you know, American robins, I think if we can get these young folks out there understanding the environment and that there's this big wide world, it's going to help in the big picture. In the meantime, yeah, I think um, public service messages, if you look at uh, all of the recreationists that are out in Colorado and Montana on a daily basis year-round and, and the incredibly few number of incidents we have of, of adverse encounters with mountain lions and people, I, I think it's a testament to the fact that, yeah, we know these cats are out there. Uh, and if they really had uh, harm on their mind, there, there'd be a heck of a lot more incidents. So uh, if we can help, um, and I just, I don't mean to, you know, I don't, People don't need to be fearful of these cats, but just aware of them, I think, is really the, the training we need, mountain lion awareness, and to help them realize that, for the most part, they're already coexisting with these animals in an amicable way. They may never see them, but the cats are probably around doing their thing, and, and everybody's getting by fine. Well, let, let's talk about that just a little bit. Um, you know, the um, Mountain Lion Foundation re- recently did a post of one of the cats, I think it's P63, that they saw again, and it survived the wildfires. It's a collared lion, and the most recent camera trap footage showed that it has mange. And so this brings in some other points in terms of poisoning, rat poisoning that we put out in in our landscapes to rid ourselves of pests such as mice and that kind of thing, unwanted critters in our gardens and how that goes up the food chain. I think they've said that every lion in California is currently has high levels of toxins and poison in their um, systems so that eventually like this particular lion it begins to show other related signs of immune system weakness. So tell us a little bit about how that works and some of the work that you've done um, experiences in collaring lions. What's what's that like? Well, it's a great question, and it, I, I have to give credit to Seth Riley, Jeff Sikich, and their team out in the Santa Monica Mountains National uh, uh, Park area in um, Southern California. They really were the ones that, and, and along with a, a veterinarian, Dr. Whitehead, uh, out there, uh, I came out at one point and helped train them on surgical implantation of transmitters into uh, kittens, uh, bobcat kittens, and they subsequently translated that into doing the same work with mount lions. But it was Seth and Jeff and their team that really had the smoke has the smoking gun on these rodenticides, causing immune suppression in cats, probably other wildlife as well, leading to the um, uh, kind of the the. Uh, infestation or overwhelming of the system with things like notoedric mange in bobcats and mountain lions. And uh, it's my sense, Ellie, that if we look, uh, we've seen an increase in coyotes with mange, foxes, black bears. And uh, I think if we start taking a closer look at this, including white-nosed fungus and bats, which are eating a ton of insects, which are probably carrying various pesticides and things like that, I think the, the, the probably the truth of the matter is that this sublethal chronic exposure to chemicals in the environment, pesticides, herbicides, etc., um, is probably at play with all of these ailments, including uh, the snake fungus disease that's going on and plaguing rattlesnakes, for instance, endangered rattlesnakes in the east. Um, but yeah, I, it was really an amazing piece of research that Seth and that team put together uh, starting with bobcats, that they noticed this incredible incidence of notoedric mange in these cats, and in doing blood work, determined that they were carrying uh, high levels of rodenticides from the mice and rats that they'd been eating that had been exposed to household suburban um, uh, pesticides, rodenticides around the homes and, and businesses. And yeah, how and important. how much this is leaving the urban or you know inhabited areas that we sort of. Uh, proliferate in out into the wild so that these populations of rodents are carrying it further and further away from us and into what we would call 
pristine areas or wildlands. It, it seems that way, and I have to say this is very much like, I, I really make the equation, this is the modern version of Silent Spring with Rachel Carson. And right. I, I personally feel that if we look at papillomavirus and sea turtles, uh, the starfish die-offs that have been going on, that probably uh, there it's, has something to do with, again, chronic uh, non-lethal exposure to chemicals in, in their environment. And, and I think it's something we really, really need to look at as a society and certainly as science, because I, I am somewhat afraid we may be close to a tipping point beyond which we can't recover. Uh, and that would that that's both tragic and, and terribly frightening. So, yeah. So um, we have a few more minutes in this section and then we're going to have to cut to a break. So, um, gosh, I'm just so overwhelmed by what we have done to our wildlife and our wildlands through ignorance and using so many of these compounds and your comment that it's the modern day version of uh, the silent spring. So give us a hint of what we in mountain lion country can do to shift our mindset on using these products and chemicals and um, letting things getting a little more used to living with other creatures out there that we don't necessarily like and call pests. Well, you know, as, as bleak as things look, I, I, I always try to keep a positive outlook. Uh, I guess I like to think of myself as cautiously optimistic or hopefully pessimistic. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there are a lot of good things going on and just the fact that awareness is growing, uh, Ellie, I think is is important. I remember a conversation I had with Frank Craighead years ago, and I I spoke to him about, and he was well into his late 70s or early 80s at the time, and I spoke to him about, you know, the future of the environment and and how um, uh, sketchy things sort of looked. And and his comment was something to the effect of, you know, you just, you have to have hope that that it'll work out and try to make the difference, you know, that you can yourself. And so I've always clung to that. so, yeah, you know, there are some great things going on out there. I think there's, you know, this this organic and green um, locally grown uh, food market is, is reemerging. You've got restaurants that are serving food that they're growing in their own uh, side yard, for instance. And, and um, the local, again, local farms um, uh, sourced locally, that kind of movement. I think people are somewhat getting back to the earth and realizing that we can't continue to poison it and, and poison ourselves, soil our own beds, uh, or we really are going to have problems. And and so um, I think just, again, going back to education and awareness, the more we can get out there in front of people uh, using the media that's so available today, social media, uh, capitalize on that much as you've done and are doing. I think it's awesome. But really just keep sort of beating the drums and waving the flags about the importance of of awareness and coexistence, uh, being kind and gentle to ourselves and, and the environment. And, you know, we're all in this together. Um, a lot of times, and of course today is so divisive in so many areas, um, I think where we can find common ground with one another uh, is where we're really going to have the successes that we need to sustain ourselves in the environment and really society. And so I'm a real proponent of, yeah, let's let's come together. Maybe once we were enemies or, or disagreed on things, but let's try to come together because surely there is some common ground that we share. Uh, not everybody, you know, wants to see another uh, big box store built on that woodlot down the street, and and maybe one person wants to have that land to hunt, another one wants to have it to bird watch, but we can both agree that we don't want a big box store going in there and destroying that woodlot. So let's work together. To, to you know to keep that from happening well, that's a wonderful positive note to end this first section on so folks stick with us we're going to step away for a short break but we've still got a lot more to talk about with dr j tischendorf so stay with us The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. 
predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my fascinating guest, Dr. Jay Tischendorf. So at the end of the last section, we were talking about what individuals can do to raise awareness and education about carnivores in our landscapes, why they're necessary, and how we can advocate for them. And we started discussing, in terms of our wildlife management systems, what we need to shift to get that mindset moving toward a conservation message versus a kill them, get rid of them, sledgehammer mowing the lawn effect. So, Jay, you had just um, told me about three habitats or conditions that we need to all come together to create a favorable outcome for mountain lions. Yeah, so I've I've always said that if we if we look specifically at the Midwest and the East as as a place where mountain lions, of course, used to and and I like to think eventually will once again exist, uh, the natural habitat clearly is there. Um, what we're lacking is the political habitat and the social habitat for the species to be welcomed back or brought back. And and until we can change that, uh, we really are going to have an uphill climb. But I think eventually it will happen. Um, again, things change, sometimes slowly, but uh, the tide comes in and the tide goes out, and I think carnivores and predators will again have their day uh, and be recognized truly as the important component of the ecosystems that they really are. Um, and not to exclude ungulates, again, we're all in this together, um, but I don't think you can have healthy ungulate populations without having some natural uh, nature-directed predatory um, uh, animals there as well. Versus and, just wildlife management tor- in favor of ungulates for us to use and utilize. Yeah, yeah. And again, wildlife management over the years has done some remarkable things. Uh, it's evolving and changing as, as, as everything is. And I think the, uh, the increasing sense of society... Uh, is that that wildlife viewing? Uh, I mean, my gosh, look at Yellowstone. I just saw a statistic from Rocky Mountain National Park that their visitation was was up uh, over the last few years in very high numbers. Yeah, people want to see wildlife, uh, and it's not always for a consumptive purpose. So uh, I do think that society's changing, and and with that, the agencies will will adapt and evolve as well to continue to serve the the uh, constituency that that they have, which really is the entire public and not just those of us that want to go out and, and uh, view wildlife, and not just those of us that want to go out and consume wildlife. So 
uh, again, there's a lot of different stakeholders that, that the agencies have to address. And, you know, for the most part, I think they do a, uh, an admiral job under difficult circumstances. Yeah, there's some things I would change. But, you know, the old saying, when you point the finger at somebody, you've got three more pointing back at you. So, uh, let's, and, and, let's, and, it's, and it's never helpful to put somebody's back up against the wall. No, no, it isn't. It isn't. That's a great point. Yeah, that's the last place you want to put somebody because uh, they're going to strike back. So, right, yeah. and that yeah. it goes to what you were saying, common ground. We all want wildlife, whether we want to utilize it, view it, enjoy nature, and know that it's out there. Um, that's kind of the common ground that we all need to sit at the table. So what can we do to ensure wildlife is there? Exactly. And, you know, we say we all want wildlife, but there is a certain portion of society that doesn't care. And so part of our challenge uh, for those of us that do want wildlife, no matter why we want it, is to is to educate that component of society that doesn't care and let them know why wildlife and the environment is is so important. Uh, so give me a give us a clue. What who is that in society? Is it I mean, is it just Americans? Is it the urbanized um concrete jungle is it the rancher you know it's a it's a great question and, and i think it's it's probably ripe fodder for uh, a really good social um uh, dimension study uh from somebody who, who does that sort of work in the conservation realm because i don't know that you can stereotype it but I, i'm well aware there are people out there and they may be folks who's just you know, their daily existence is really just bent on, uh, revolves around simple survival. And they don't have the luxury of even contemplating the, the, the importance or the existence of this world outside their their doorstep or their job place. Uh, uh, and so, you know, if we can help them, and there's other folks, I, I think, you know, even at high levels in society who just operate in, in a world where they don't need to, to think about the, the outdoor world and, and its importance. And so, Again, it'd really be a great social dimension study if somebody listening in uh, has a, an eye and an ear for that. I, I applaud you if, you if you could take that and run with it. So, That's a great yeah. idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that up. And then the yeah. other point is people who love being outdoors but are no longer really connected to the reality that nature bites back. Yes. Yes, there's that component too. And so there again, you know, education and awareness. Uh, is is worthwhile. There, there's a reality out there, uh, and uh, not everybody uh, understands or sees that. But uh, um, again, if, if if at least those folks have some appreciation of the outdoor world, they're a step ahead of the curve for for all of us. So well, I there, will mention. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go I'm, ahead. Well, I was going to mention that you know over the years, uh, I have not been uh, afraid to to speak up as a biologist and a scientist and be an advocate as well as a as a researcher. And I, I'd love to see more scientists and biologists uh, do that. Uh, I know one of the big challenges from folks who are getting their funding uh, from agencies or other sources sometimes perhaps are afraid to speak up or be perceived as an advocate. But if scientists, excuse me, if scientists and researchers aren't stepping up and standing up for the species that we care about and, and study, then you know, we can't expect anyone else to do that. And so I really think as leaders in conservation and science, we need to be the ones beating those drums, waving the flags, and taking the lead in that advocacy and not being afraid to speak up, uh, especially if the data supports what we're saying. And uh, so... That's, know, a, that's a really good point. I mean, between my work in Africa, my longtime... Um, enjoyment and study of carnivores and even the work here folks like you folks like carter niemeyer um and john landre and everybody you work with everybody's who who's been doing this long-term research and you brought in a, a a big pressure point grants from organizations or grants from corporations that are so-called doing green work if these folks don't start, I don't know if I want to call it choosing a side or at least speaking up and providing some of the emotional content that is needed today, we'll, we won't really be able or will we be able to get beyond just people saying, I love animals 
and and social networking of and clickivism. If if yes. we don't have the biologists so called on our side to help push this paradigm of the management systems, then who do we turn to? Yeah, well and this conversation really dovetails well and blends into the subject of of how wildlife is funded, Ellie, and I think things will change and they, they have to change because there's a huge segment, and again, this would be a social dimension study, huge segment of society who feels that they do, do not have a voice in natural resource conservation or management. And until the funding of, of, agency change, of agencies changes, uh, that will probably continue to be the case. But uh, you, you sort of brought in the corporate uh, funding and groups like Patagonia, North Face, Eastern Mountain Sports, REI, um, et cetera, who, who might have the wherewithal to really, in Patagonia notably, I think has stood out as one that has put its money where its mouth is. Uh, I do think, and we've tried to make this case with the Cougar Rewilding Foundation, that uh, we, we as a society could, could easily enact a very small nominal tax on outdoor equipment, not just hunting and fishing gear, but any outdoor equipment. And most outdoor recreationists would totally support that. That money could be funneled into natural resource con- conservation, much like Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson do with, with hunting and fishing gear. Um, and this would give people who enjoy the outdoors for whatever reason. Uh, and that would certainly change the weight of the argument by the um, license fees for hunters and fishermen and outdoorsmen who want to utilize consumptively or kill we haven't even touched on killing contests for fun um it would give more weight to the wildlife watchers and the non-consumptive users and it in a real world sense that we could actually see data of where money's coming from beyond hunting and fishing licenses and that sector You bet, and I give I give the the hunting and fishing community credit because for many years they really have propped up wildlife management. Again, uh, uh, it hasn't been all bad. Yes, but there is there is this segment of society that I think would like to have a voice and feels uh, left out. They don't feel like they they have a vote in the system, and so yeah, a different system of funding would help change that. And uh, the other thing is just the value of wildlife viewing. And, and I mean, look at Yellowstone. And we've made a case with the Cougar Rewilding Foundation to um, uh, turn the Adirondacks, Adirondack State Park in New York into the, the Yellowstone of the East uh, with the restoration of predators and some other large ungulates, et cetera. And we made a, a very compelling economic model and argument uh, for that and, and backed it up with data. And it was incredible. And so that is something we're still working on. But again, without the political habitat and the social habitat to buy into that idea and that concept, uh, it won't happen, even though the natural habitat clearly, beautifully, is right there for us to all uh, utilize and capitalize on in, in an economically feasible way without degrading, without degrading the environment. And or people's of, lifestyles. Well, there you go. We prop up the local communities and economies with wildlife viewing i mean look at the leaf watchers right every year in right. new england the 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 leaf peepers or whatever they're called come out in force in tour buses and they're spending money in the cafes and the hotels and you know that's another dimension very similar to what hunting has done over the years when when hunters come to town for the the, the particular season they're fishermen etc so yeah i think there's a lot of potential hope out there um and it's going to take some momentum uh, I think if the outdoor retailers would, would step up and acknowledge that their constituency actually probably would support or, or pose the question to their constituency, would you support this? I think so many outdoor recreations, mountain bikers, hikers, trekkers, rock climbers would say, heck yeah, I don't mind spending a few extra pennies uh, when I buy some equipment to, to, to know that it's going to go to a good cause. Um, so yeah, I'm excited by the, the future of that. At one point it was called the backpack tax and it failed. I think that was under the Clinton uh, administration, but that was largely, honestly, because the outdoor retailers would not get on board with the idea. They 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 refused to uh, to join in. Uh, and uh, you know, I say shame on them because I think they missed a great opportunity 
Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully the landscape, so to speak, the political and uh, social landscape has shifted now since the last time that tax was proposed. As we've been discussing, so many more people are involved in um, wanting a greener tomorrow, not only for wildlife, but to recreate in and uh, to know that their children will have wildness and these animals, carnivores, and all the web of the ecosystem to see. It's, it, you'd said it earlier, we're, we're really on the leading edge right now, the razor's edge of this paradigm shift and tipping point. And it's just going to take, as you said, a, a big momentum push to watch it, the swell, just happen. Well, beautifully said, and I, I feel like we're really on the, the, the pinnacle of this uh, pyramid of, of f- three or four sides, and it is the tipping point, and it could go either way. It could go down the path of environmental destruction and degradation and no recovery, or it can go down the side of you know a greener, uh, more holistic view of our environment that sustains us, and, and we have to help sustain it, uh, or perhaps some other path, but yeah. Uh, I think the tipping point, the razor's edge analogy is really great, uh, Ellie, because um, unfortunately it, there's a couple different ways we could fall or get cut, get sliced on right. this. And, uh, you know, not all of them are good, but right. there is that hope. That and in the, in the political landscape, so to speak, of this Green New Deal, what I think a majority of the populace who's ranting and raving or pushing for it either side and I do want to say I am not anti-hunting and I don't dislike hunters so I just need to get that out there hunting does play a role so but the political folks the urban folks in this huge political discussion we're having right now in terms of the United States when we think about the politics of what we're voting for the possibility uh, of we need to also raise the awareness which I think you've made pretty clear of what that includes in terms of wild places wild spaces biologists researchers and a space for this to continue so that we as recreators and nature lovers have something to enjoy bravo bravo yes I agree. And uh, I will say, too, I, I have hunted. Uh, I don't do much anymore, uh, but um, I, I'm not opposed to hunting when it's scientifically managed and based. Uh, and I, I, uh, I love, I enjoy guns. Uh, I really find them fascinating and um, uh, in, enjoy them. So, well, yeah, I don't the point want, is yeah. ethics and morals and respect. Very well said. Very well said for one another of, of uh, yeah. across the board. Yeah. Not only people to people, um, and you'd mentioned the word divisiveness. Um, we're so divided in terms of always finding the other to be an enemy, and that seems to be the landscape we're living in right now. In in what I call the crazy train of today, that we <laughs> need to um, speak up more and engage better on the side of kindness, peace, and I'm not trying to be willy-nilly, you know, flower power thing, but create that social habitat you were talking about and not climb aboard the vitriol. Uh, you, you've, you've said it very well, uh, Ellie, and I think sometimes we have to uh, be in the darkness to see the light and... Uh, maybe again with the tipping point analogy we're, we're close to that point where we are going to start seeing the light and realizing we you know we, we help one another and I hear what you're saying you know we don't want to be all necessarily kumbaya and all that the smurfs come out the sun is shining everybody's <laughs> happy but not to say those are bad things but realistically um, you know there is reality and and so but I think you know with cases we've made like the economic revitalization plan for the Adirondacks as a wildlife viewing mecca Yellowstone or the East, I think there's a lot that could be done to prop up the economy of the United States and other parts of the world with conservation-focused, wildlife-centric opportunities and and initiatives without harvesting, consuming, further degrading that environment. So, you know, we push that, we foist that on all these 
third world countries, right? Right. Oh, go into the villages and, and you've been there. You've seen that. How we tell them, oh, you've got to do this and, and this and that. And you can't continue to be poaching all these animals and so on. And yet, uh, in our own backyard, we, we don't do the same thing. So. Well, as I've always said, conservation is about people. If there were no people, we wouldn't need conservation. <laughs> so th- this con- right where we are in this con- conversation, um, we're at a point where maybe we could discuss kind of a sticky issue. Oil and gas, fracking and drilling, and, you know, the the desperate need to continue on this petroleum-based uh, train that we're on and how we can, if we can, coexist that with wildlife. Wow. I know it's a biggie. Uh, I know yes. I, I kind of caught you off, off guard. But That's okay. um, you'd, you'd sort of mentioned to me that alternate for funds would also allow agencies to dedicate more time and resources to non-game, non-ungulate species that need better help. And the, the, the RAWA, R-A-W-A initiative, what is that? That is Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And that stems from a group, it's called the Blue Ribbon Panel, and I probably won't get the name straight, but Blue Ribbon Panel, let's say for, for wildlife, for natural resources, conservation. And it was a, a, a group pulled together... Um, by the uh, 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 National uh, Fish and Wildlife Association uh, or, or an organization, that, again, probably not getting their acronym correct, but it's a, a so- National Association of Fish, Fish and Wildlife Agencies. And they concluded that we could, as a country, um, tap into the money, the profits that derive from oil and gas and take a small portion of that profit and channel that back into natural resource conservation since those oil and gas activities often impact uh, the natural systems. And so much like Dingle Johnson and and Pittman Robertson with siphoning some money, a tax, if you will, off hunting and fishing gear, this would be similar in that it would take some money from the profits that are derived. Um, The problem with it, and, and again, you know, I'm all in favor of alternative funding sources for agencies, because this theoretically would open up more opportunity for non-game species and endangered species to, to have, have some funding and support. But in some ways, some folks have described this as blood money uh, in that, you know, at the same time we're degrading the environment or potentially degrading the environment with oil and gas uh, development and, and activities. Uh, we're then also trying to rebuild the environment or prop it up with, uh, because of that money and, and that degradation. And so, it's sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul, I guess, would be one analogy, one way to look at it. Uh, I prefer the backpack tax sort of idea. Um, I mean, one number I saw, honestly, was that outdoor recreation contributes something like, um, I don't know, almost $400 billion to the American economy. Uh, I don't know what oil and gas contributes. I'm sure it's, it's probably substantial. But if we could get on board as recreationists and outdoor people, and again, uh, acknowledge that we're okay with if somebody wants to take a few pennies, charge us a few pennies more for our products and in uh, gear, that we'll happily pay that to support the environment. I think I'd like to see that have a chance of success before we start using the, the RAWA type fundings and, and linking oil and gas. Well, what about uh, the, the idea that, you know, it's, it, we need as many eggs in the basket for alternative funding? So let's say the Rawa idea, you know, rather than looking at it as black and white, that we're destroying the planet to save it, if at the same time we are also working with oil and gas to provide better energy alternatives, then it's not blood money. It's money that we help guide how these systems are working, the limits, the parameters, and get them involved because once again it's it's the table that we're talking about they want they you know we need energy some things aren't going away anytime soon but if we quit demonizing everybody and saying we can't take this blood money and we come to the table and all work maybe i'm naive and it's a dream but it's that comfortably pessimistic or 
comfortably optimistic <laughs> yeah. that hopefully pessimistic or yeah we have to yeah. find yeah. some way to bring all these aspects to the table to yeah. save this planet no well thank you i i, I want to say thank you because you've helped clarify in my mind uh you know an important way of looking at that and you're absolutely correct uh, i should not have been so black and white and castigated the oil and gas because again they do have the potential to help us with sustainable renewable energy sources solar power perhaps you know wind power um uh, different things and so yeah you're absolutely right and to use some other um you know expressions let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. exactly cut our noses off to spite our faces and say no to rawa uh let's embrace that and figure out a way to to make it uh as beneficial for for everybody so no thank you uh, ellie for helping clarify you, you really, <laughs> well you're welcome it's just I, doing I what i corrected. do you know yeah. i don't know i don't feel it's been corrected it's it's kind <laughs> of because i talk to so many people and the work that i do i have to sometimes take a middle road and leave the the hard line emotional aside and find a way that we can all work together and at this point in time on this pinnacle of the pyramid that we're at we need to be I don't want to necessarily say accommodating. We need to be strong, adamant, advocate, and also leave room for discussion that we may not necessarily be fully on board with or comfortable with Yes. for the interim until we get there. Well, again, beautifully said, and of course, a big focus of our conversation, con- our conservation conversation yeah. today has been, you know, finding that common ground. And so we need to, to uh, model that ourselves. And I, I kind of fell off the wagon there for a moment. So thanks for bringing, pulling me back up onto the, <laughs> onto the Conestoga, uh, because yeah, we, we've got to walk, we've got to walk the walk that we're talking. And uh, yeah, so uh, again, bottom line for me is I'd love to see some alternate new uh, funding models for agencies. RAWA certainly could be one of those. Uh, still a big proponent for the backpack tax or something like that. Um, but we need to do something different to really help the environment as a whole and uh, not just have agencies that are, um, you know, really obligated to try to manage for their constituency, which largely has been hunters and fishermen for so many years. So well, we I, need to reshape it so that they're obligated to do their job for all of us. There you go. There you go. Yep. Yep. So, um, unfortunately, we're kind of out of time for today, but this has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. And it just highlights once again how interconnected everything is, not only in the natural world. We didn't really get into you know some of your experiences with cougars so i would you know love to continue talking with you more it's 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 a great you're a great conversationist and um you know that we need to get out there and look at our wild world as michael soule says you know we we protect what we love and his podcast with me called possibilism that being out in nature isn't just about recreating it's about connecting sitting quietly out there and seeing who else lives with us in our neighborhoods and yeah. creating space and a mindset that social uh, habitat you were talking about to help shift the political habitat because we already have the natural habitat bingo boom you nailed it. <laughs> Boom. Pulled it all together. That's great. <laughs> no, you did. That's exactly how it has to work because without the social habitat, we won't have the political habitat uh, to restore things to the natural habitat that already exists for us so far. And so. since we're, we seem to be the main drivers, humans, of where our world is going to go from tomorrow and on, we have to be the drivers of um, this change so folks um, as I always say you know step out into your wild world our wild world and we have to advocate for this so Jay fascinating conversation thank you so much for your time 
Ellie, thank you. And I'm off for a few days to search out the supposedly extinct ivory-billed woodpecker in the swamps and bayous of Louisiana here for a few days. So oh, wow. I'll be out of touch, but that could be a subject for another podcast, perhaps. Absolutely. I'd love to talk with you more. And this was just a fabulous conversation today. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. I'm honored and flattered to have been part of it and appreciate you so very much for doing the work you do. Well, you're welcome and have fun out there. We will try. All right. Stay safe. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.